welcome to Battleground Ukraine with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. As well as news and analysis, our aim is to bring some perspective to what is a very complicated historical situation. We're going to do our best to try and explain the Russian mindset as well as the Ukrainian, and helping us gain some idea of the complexities and contradictions today is Professor Orlando Figes, who has very kindly agreed to talk to us. He's a professor of history at Birkbeck College London, where he's built up a reputation as one of our foremost historians of Russia, with a deep knowledge and understanding uh, of its history and culture. His latest book, The Story of Russia, is out next week. I asked him about how Russia's historical relationship with Ukraine explains the war, how he thinks the conflict is going, and how he thinks it might end. Putin's chief justification for the invasion of Ukraine is that it is not a real country, as you put it in the book, but a historic part of greater Russia, a borderland protecting Moscow's heartlands from the West. What is the historical basis for such a claim? Well, this comes from Putin's article published by the Kremlin in July 2021, entitled On the Relations Between the Russians and Ukrainians, in which he argued that ever since the founding of Kiev and Rus, which is essentially a 19th century term for the state formed in the 9th century, um, arguably by Slavs, some say by Viking marauders, others uh, say by uh, Asiatic tribes. Um, so definitely the reality is that Kiev and Rus was probably a multi-ethnic configuration. But for Putin in that article, it's the foundation of the modern Russian state, therefore the Soviet Union, therefore the Russian Federation as the successor of that imperial entity. And in that reading of history for Putin, Ukraine, or Little Russia as it was called in the imperial discourse of the 18th and 19th century, was just, as you say, a borderland of greater Russia. It had no claim to nationhood or statehood other than the false or artificial statehood that Lenin gave it in forming the Soviet Union. So that gives us a clue to, I think, Putin's other great historical gripe about the existence of Ukraine, namely that the post-Soviet Ukrainian state formed in 1991 was illegitimate because it took, firstly, more Russian lands than it should have taken on forming an independent state. So in particular, what the Russians used to call New Russia, um, the province of the coast uh, on the south, uh, excluding Crimea, and the Donbass, which is where so much of the fighting has been, but also that Ukraine, if it was to succeed from the Soviet Union, as it did, pulling the plug effectively on the Soviet Union in 1991, should have left it with what it entered. Now, you can see that um, as two uh, suggestions, either that it should leave without New Russia and the Donbass, or that it should leave it with what it entered it, which, uh, which in, in Putin's idea is possibly nothing. So either way, for Putin's historical vision, Ukraine should not exist because it never had this element of statehood or nationhood behind it. Now, this is clearly 
nonsense, really. I mean, it's, it's, what has any of this to do with contemporary reality is the most obvious thing to ask. Ukraine has been an independent state for, uh, 30 years, uh, and, uh, Russia as a post-imperial state clearly has tremendous problems in coming to terms with that reality. And I guess that leads us to the question of, well, when will Russia sort of leave this notion of itself as an empire? When will it exist as a, a nation state, albeit a rather large and clumsy one, at peace with its neighbours? And for my money, it, that won't happen for as long as Putin and the supporters of this imperial ideology remain in power. You talk very early on in, in the book, The Story of Russia, Orlando, to give a bit of sort of understanding for Putin's mindset now about the how an understanding of Russian history with regard to its geographical location and its subordination of society to state. Uh, you know, it's vital that you understand that to understand Putin now. Can you tell us a little bit about the early years of uh, certainly Romanov Russia and why it always felt so unstable and needed to create this kind of protective ring around it? Yes, I mean, I think there's essentially been two Western views of of Russia's expansion. Firstly, the idea that it is intrinsically expansionist and aggressive, which is, for the Russians at least, a Russophobic view going back to the Cold War and beyond that into the 19th century when the Marquis de Custine in 1839 wrote a very influential treatise on Russia saying essentially that, that it was an autocracy built as a military state to enslave its people for its military expansion. And it expanded because it was so unstable as a political entity that war and expansion was necessary to keep this autocracy going. And you could, I suppose, apply that to Putin's war in Ukraine. And then there's another view, which is that because of Russia's size and the openness of its frontiers on the Eurasian steppe, you know, what defines Russia? It's not clear. It's the Ural Mountains are really just a series of, of high hills with gaps in between. So there's no clear differentiation between European Russia and Asiatic Russia. Um, likewise, the, the southern frontiers of Russia have always been open uh, to incursions by Turkic-speaking tribes and the Crimean Tatars and the Black Sea coast, which became under Catherine the Great, the, the, the frontier of Russia, remained very, very vulnerable to naval attacks through the Black Sea and was itself on a sort of Christian-Muslim fault line running right across the southern frontier of Russia. So because of the instability of Russia's frontiers, the porous nature of those uh, borders, the argument goes that Russia needed to expand into borderlands to create a buffer zone around itself, to protect itself from attack from hostile powers who would use those uh, febrile borders, use those national minorities like Ukrainians or Poles under the Tsars to attack Russia itself. And that is how the Russians now under Putin see that 
sort of geopolitical historical background to the war. So Putin and his ideologists in the Kremlin today are constantly harping on about this history, that Ukraine has always been used by Western powers to attack Russia. Before Ukraine, it was Poland, always used by Napoleon and other powers to attack Russia. So um, you have essentially then two diametrically opposed historical versions of Russia's expansionist history and geopolitical situation. And where Western historians and certainly ideologists and politicians would subscribe to the first, I think we nonetheless need to understand that from the Russian point of view, be it slightly paranoid maybe, but necessarily for their point of view grounded in history, we have to understand where they're coming from in order to to deal with them now. So that, in a sense, was what I was trying to do with the book, not to apologise for the Russian point of view, but to try and balance their point of view about their history and how they've got to where they are now in Ukraine with what we in the West might see as a more objective view. There were, uh, along those lines, Orlando, uh, I think, as you point out in the book, opportunities at the end of, uh, after the fall of communism to uh, maybe encourage uh, the Russians to take a more uh, Western-type stance. Even Putin himself spoke in those terms in the early years of his leadership. Was this an opportunity missed, do you think? I think so, yes. I mean... (laughs) I don't want to get into the game of sort of blaming NATO for the, for the, for the war in Ukraine. I mean, it's Putin to blame for the war in Ukraine and we should have no doubts about that. But I certainly agree with George Kennan, the great, uh, uh scholar and, uh, diplomat and, uh, Russia watcher who indeed himself came up with the idea of containment in 1946 in his long telegram. So he's no sort of apologist for Russia in any way. He understood better than anyone in his day the threat which the Soviet Union represented to the West. But George Kennan in in the late 1990s is on record as saying that he thought the expansion of NATO was a mistake and a provocation to Russia. And whether... Um, a different course could have been pursued, possibly through the idea of neutrality for post-Soviet states is another matter. I mean, uh, the Baltic states are sovereign states. They have a right to apply for NATO membership. But regardless of that, I think that there could have been more communication possibly between NATO and the Russian Federation, greater transparency about what was going on. And I certainly think that the build-up of U.S. military uh, presence and aid and training of Ukrainians since 2014, although entirely justified given the uh, Russian aggression in Ukraine in 2014, nonetheless... Uh, was inevitably going to lead to some sort of reaction from the Russians. Mm-hmm. For me, the missed opportunity really was after 1991, when Russia might have been brought into a closer security arrangement with NATO and indeed with the EU, uh, because it had un- under Yeltsin a genuinely Western-oriented government with democratic aspirations, albeit with huge problems to overcome, most importantly, its own imperial legacies. 
Um, but NATO was quite explicit in excluding the possibility of Russia ever joining it. I mean, Putin did float that question, albeit informally, in 2002-2003, which was a period of great collaboration with NATO after 9-11. And he received um, a very dismissive rebuff from, from the West on that point. Um, and it became clear to him that NATO was really an anti-Russian alliance. And I don't think NATO's ever succeeded in persuading the Russians that it is anything but that. I know it casts itself as a defensive alliance, but from the Russian point of view, it's essentially an, a Western alliance against Russia and could never incorporate Russia, could never even embrace Russia in some sort of informal arrangement that would look for security arrangements to address Russian concerns over NATO's presence on its borders. So I think that the opportunity should have been taken in, in the 1990s. Um, but, you know, I think it was part of that uh, zero-sum game thinking that Russia had lost the Cold War, uh, the West could dictate to a weakened Russia under Yeltsin's leadership uh, what Russia should put up with, what Russia should expect from the West. And that just fed those historic Russian resentments of the West that were already there and well developed during the Cold War by propaganda, but which, given the economic collapse that Russia suffered in the 90s, given the great resentment that many people felt about the imposition of capitalism, the, the imposition of democracy as they saw it, were bound to only exacerbate that sense that it was okay for the Baltic states to join NATO, but Russia would always be seen as the bad guys. And so the anti-Western nationalism that Putin developed in the 2000s found an echo, found uh, some sort of resonance in those large segments of the Russian population that had lost out from capitalism and which had no sort of conceptual framework to explain why they had lost out other than to blame the West. If we drill down a little bit in, into Putin's uh, relationship or at least policy towards Ukraine uh, since he came to power, Orlando, how would you characterise that? Well, I think there has been um, a gradual and accelerating shift in his attitude towards Ukraine. I think that as late as 2008 and nine, uh, there was nothing in his rhetoric to suggest he believed Ukraine should be erased from the geopolitical map. He fully accepted Ukrainian sovereignty. But I think that um, his discourse about uh, the Russian world, which develops from 210 to 11, um, much under the influence of the Russian Orthodox Church, suggests um, a shift. And that rhetoric was, as I say, originated by the Church in the sense that there was a sort of civilization of the Orthodox spread beyond Russia's geopolitical borders, which the Church wanted to reclaim. So the Russian world rhetoric started with the Patriarch and other church leaders 
uh, talking about reclaiming the diaspora churches under the sovereignty of the Moscow Patriarchy. And Putin saw this as a chance to develop the idea that Russia should be defined beyond its borders, that it was effectively a civilizational empire um, that's represented all those millions of Russian speakers left outside of Russia by the collapse of the Soviet Union, which, as you'll recall, in 2005, he had characterized as the, the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century. Well, what people often forget about that uh, speech was that in the rest of that sentence, he said, as for Russia, it left us with tens of millions of our, quote, our citizens outside of our borders. Well, they're not our citizens. Russian speakers in Ukraine are Ukrainian citizens and generally now would see themselves as Ukrainian citizens, likewise in Kazakhstan or the Baltic states. But Putin has this imperial conception of Russia's claim to all Russian speakers, which uh, developed strongly after 2012. I think some of it under the influence of thinkers like Carl Schmitt, who was a Nazi theorist, uh, uh, legal philosopher, whose ideas were popularized in Russia by people like Alexander Dugin and other Eurasianist thinkers who wanted to reconceptualize Russia as a Eurasian power, but also as a power of an empire that could be characterized as a civilization with a statehood at its core and with almost like a built-in right to dominate those that it claimed as part of its civilization. You can see where this comes from Nazism. Well, it's sort of thrust onto Putin's conception of Russia as a, as a new empire, uh, with a sphere of influence at the very least, but which then is used from 212 and uh, comes to the fore in 2014 as uh, an almost, you know, a sort of built-in messianic right to save the Russian speakers from the possibility of genocide after the Ukrainian revolution, when it's true the Ukrainian parliament passed an ill-thought-out law, which it later revoked, to take away the protection of Russian as an official language, as a language you could use in schools and offices. Well, Putin jumped onto that to claim that the Russian speakers of Crimea and East Ukraine were threatened by uh, a sort of linguistic genocide by the Ukrainian nationalist regime, as he put it, the junta, as he characterized it. And, and that was the pretext for the invasion of Crimea. And he's continued with that sort of rhetoric ever since. Um, it's, it's not realistic. And in fact, the, uh, effect of his, uh, policies and certainly his war since February has been to drive those very Russian speakers into the arms of the Ukrainians. So Ukraine is arguably now a much more united nation, including the Russian speakers, than it was before the war. So this is a case, I think, of Putin sort of fulfilling his own prophecy by pursuing his fantastic ideas of, of Russia's imperial claims. Um, and it just goes to show, I think, how how damaging, how dangerous these sort of mythic ideas of history can be when used by nationalist dictators. 
How do we explain uh, in that context, Orlando, this his extraordinary decision to launch a full-scale invasion of Ukraine when, frankly, he was uh, achieving quite a few of his regional goals by not actually going to war? So how can we possibly explain that? Yeah, I, it's very hard to explain. I think uh, everyone was taken by surprise and shocked, and including some people, I, I believe, in the you know, Kremlin's inner circle. I mean, when you look at that Security Council meeting of the 21st of February, when he lines up all his ministers and gets them to support his recognition of Luhansk and Donetsk, I mean, it seems to me that Lavrov um, is visibly shocked um, and tries to point out, well, there's still mileage to be had in diplomacy. So it did take everyone by surprise and is hard to explain. I think that the explanation is not in some notion that Putin went mad or is crazy, which was the initial sort of tabloid reaction to, to the war. I think this is a war that has been long planned by uh, the KGB, effectively, the FSB in Russia. I think that, as you say, everything was really going its way. I mean, it was dividing the West. It had effectively got Trump into power, Brexit had taken place, Europe was divided, Russia was stacking up a huge foreign currency reserve by selling oil and gas to, to the West. It was getting away with its Crimean annexation. Um, there were no real sanctions against the Russian elites. And what was there to be gained from war? So how do we explain it? I'm really still scratching my head, but it seems to me that there are two things that we need to bear in mind here. One is, as I say, it was a war long planned out, and the timing for this was pretty good come February 22, um, in the sense that Europe was visibly divided still. The West was still recovering from COVID. US military aid to Ukraine was slowly building up. So this was perhaps a window of opportunity. They had tried out some of their other tactics, namely forced refugee movements in the war in Syria, which they uh, tried again, remember, by sort of smuggling Middle Eastern refugees across the border from Belarus into Poland. They could see the sort of destabilization they could affect through measures like that. And so I think there was a sort of a window of opportunity which the planners of this war saw um, and which they knew would be limited because at some point, you know, the West would recover from COVID and everything else. But the other factor, and I, and I think this is probably the key to an explanation, but it's only a guess, is that it was really a cock-up. A cock-up because the FSB, the foreign uh, wing of its intelligence gathering, was really off the ball in saying to Putin, as we believe it did, that the Zelensky government was weak and would collapse. Um, Kiev could be taken uh, in a matter of a few days. 
Um, I suspect we'll find out, as it was rumoured at the time, I believe, that, that a lot of that intelligence was, was wrong because some of the intelligence officers were pocketing the money but making up the stories they were feeding back to Moscow. And, and that would, would sort of ring true with a lot of the cock-ups that have happened pre-invasion in not just Russian history, for that matter, but in, in other historical episodes, I suppose. So, um, yeah, so I, I guess... Yes, um, you know, historians in 50 years' time might find out what, what really happened. Great stuff, Orlando, really is. Tr- tremendous. Uh, one last question, and that, and again, this is, you know, sort of uh, hopelessly imprecise, of course, at this stage, but how might this end, uh, and what type of Russia and Ukraine, for that matter, might we see uh, when this all plays out? Yeah, well, as I say at the end of the book, I think there are three possible scenarios. I mean, the first... And least likely, I'm afraid, is a, is a Ukrainian victory, if we mean by victory the expulsion of Russian forces from the whole of Ukraine and its 1991 um, borders. I don't think that is really feasible. I think that uh, Russia is more likely to, to remain in the territories it presently occupies, namely the Donbass, uh, the coastal region and, and Crimea. And I don't think, uh, even if Ukraine were to score some sort of victory and Putin were to be humiliated, I don't think that the regime would topple somehow. I mean, his power base is strong. Um, his popularity is high. The propaganda machinery, uh, will explain whatever, uh, defeat Russia might suffer. Um, in a way that gives it a positive gloss. Much more likely is um, some sort of long stalemate uh, in which effectively Russia uh, remains in occupation of the territories it has and Ukraine remains for, for many years a dysfunctional state, unable to join NATO, unable to join the EU because it's still occupied and, and that would be in a way, I guess, a sort of limited victory from the Russian point of view because that was always its aim in stirring the war in the Donbass to prevent uh, Ukraine from joining NATO. And I'm afraid, um, I'm, I'm slightly pessimistic about this war, uh, and therefore inclined to the view that some sort of limited Russian victory or something that Putin can declare as a victory is, is the most likely scenario of this. Um, because ultimately his war campaign is, is based on the, the notion that the West just will not see it out. Um, Western societies will divide, possibly right-wing populist governments will come into power, maybe in Italy as early as September. Uh, he's already got one in Hungary. Um, and that these governments will divide the Western alliance and, and support for Ukraine will, will slowly decline. I just hope uh, that Western resolve can remain strong enough so that support can continue to flow to the Ukrainians long enough for them to fight their way into a position where, yes, they will have in the end to um, to approach the Russians for peace talks, but that they can do so from a position of strength where 
some sort of resolution to preserve some element of Ukrainian sovereignty um, can be achieved through those talks. But the result of that for, for Russia, I mean, it's there's no good outlook in this war for anybody. But, you know, the best that we can hope for is a Ukrainian peace with Russia that allows for Ukrainian sovereignty, albeit at the expense of some Ukrainian territories, but that Russia will be, as a result of this war, isolated from the West, that there will be a huge effort on the part of Russia required over probably several generations for Russia to re-enter the international community in a way that it can be trusted. Well, that was absolutely fascinating. And in part two, we're going to dig into some of the points that Orlando made and look at the key developments shaping the war this week. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back. Well, that was all very illuminating. Uh, what I got from it, Saul, was a very strong sense that at the back of Russia's behaviour is a, an inability uh, to let go of the past and to define itself according to the realities of its new circumstances. Well, it's a problem, of course, that, that faces all declining empires or once great powers. But fortunately, most of them seem to accept their fate and try and manage it rather than aggressively reclaim the past. Yeah, I think you've got a double problem here, Patrick, with one harking back to the past, but also harking back to a past, which, as Orlando points out, in some ways is a, is a complete myth. Um, you know, the, the relationship between Russia and Ukraine is, is fascinating. It goes all the way back to Kiev and Rus, uh, or at least both sides claim a connection to, Kiev, to Kievan Rus. Uh, but is there really a link? Of course, the Kievan Rus are, are knocked out by the, uh, the Mongols in the 12th and 13th centuries. And there is no actual long-term link. So really, you've got two strands going back to something that doesn't uh, really exist. Yeah, but of course, you know, myth is as powerful as reality, perhaps more powerful in these circumstances. But this sort of question of managing decline, I mean, the comparison with, with the British Empire, which... Um, well, you know, there was a certain amount of uh, nostalgia, empire loyalism. It was actually a political movement and some idea that the, the empire could somehow uh, continue in, in its, with its old power, if you like, uh, but in a kind of new form. And that, that took a, a time to die. But it's now really uh, got to the end of the process. So we're actually now looking back on the empire and seeing nothing there. Uh, to like uh, it's so there's this sort of process of self-flagellation which we see on all fronts and a I think a distortion of history not because I'm an empire enthusiast or a defender of colonialism but it just seems to me to be a disservice to history to go from one extreme to the other so to see it as some do now many do now as, as really a kind of evil empire um, I think is uh is not the right way to go and utterly distorts the past. Yeah, I think it's important, of course, just like with the British Empire, that you look back and you accept that uh, there is good and bad, but you can't return to those days. Uh, you know, can you imagine if we said, well, actually, there are bits of the former British Empire we'd really rather like to get our hands on again uh, in the case of let's take some of the, you know, the, the, the former white colonies, because 
uh, you know, they they were British originally. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's clearly nonsense. And and what the war, of course, has done, as Orlando points out, is actually make people who have Russian ethnicity in Ukraine actually think, well, no, thank you very much. If this is if this is the way Russia behaves, we want no part of it. Yeah. Uh, This made me think, actually, about uh, America's standing at the moment. I mean, there are some who say, and I think there are increasing signs of this, that America already is well advanced uh, down the road of decline. And that looking back uh, at the adventures in Iraq, Afghanistan, to a certain extent, this could be interpreted. And indeed, you know, Russian propaganda does present it like this, and anti-Western propaganda presents these actions like this as sort of, you know, the flailings of a a declining power desperate to try and project uh, its its influence and its prestige, show that it's still master of the the universe uh, with these very costly military adventures. So, I mean, there is a, a case perhaps to be made for seeing Iraq uh, in the same sort of terms as the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Does that argument have any validity for you? Yeah, it's it's a little bit more complicated because, of course, America was lashing out, uh, you know, blindly and very violently after 9-11. In other words, it had pretty serious provocation. And we, we know now, of course, there is no link between 9-11 and the war in Iraq. But I think they thought there was a bit of a link and they also saw it as a chance to reset. But I take your point. I mean, America, of course, is, you know, apart from the odd territory, has never really had a formal empire, but it's had an informal empire that uh, matters, uh, mattered and matters very much. And I, I, I agree with you. I think uh, historians will look back on Iraq and say this was one of the last great imperial ventures. Were they intending to stay? No, of course, but they wanted to create a kind of informal uh, imperial uh, control there, which means putting a client state, putting a, a client government in control. And you would then have the benefit not only of uh, the strategic benefit and the security benefits, but you'd also have a lot of business benefits. So, and that is uh, or has been America's modus operandi to a certain extent. So, yes, I, I think it's a, a very interesting analogy, actually, Patrick. Yeah. Um- also thinking about Germany and France. I mean, France, uh, although it sort of technically sort of abandoned it or, or rather let its empire go, of course, it remained very present, particularly on the kind of diplomatic, military and economic front. Uh, so that was one way of doing it, a sort of soft power way of doing it. Germany had a complete personality change after uh, the defeat in the Second World War. Uh, so it went from being, you know, militaristic, aggressive, expansionist into this, you know, very Pacific, economically oriented, all its energies went into the economic miracle, and it kind of completely renounced its its past. Now, the, I think the reason for that was, was the complete, utter disaster they experienced in the war. So they, to put it very simply, they learned a lesson. And I always think that is one of the arguments for the strategic bombing campaign. I mean, it didn't take long for people to start saying that actually we were guilty of war crimes as well. This was a barbaric act. And indeed it was, you know, setting out deliberately to kill civilians. But if you are going to justify it, I think one thing you can point to is this personality change. So Germany was a completely different nation after the war, and it was because it saw what happened if you followed someone like Hitler. Now, I think for Russia to have the same utter change of, of outlook and direction, you probably have to have a catastrophic defeat. Um, do you think that's likely? 
Uh, well, you know, looking into our crystal ball, we don't know. I mean, we'll come on to the news and some of the important uh, developments uh, that might give you a tiny indication that the tide is turning a little bit. Uh, we talked a bit about this last week. Uh, but Orlando Figes was really quite um, pessimistic, really, in how he thinks all of this is going to turn out. I mean, he personally, uh, as he said right at the end, thinks that uh, the West really has to stay strong on this and give uh, Ukraine some kind of negotiating position so that it gets some kind of rump state that allows it to live it as an independent nation. But as he also pointed out, um, you know, no one's going to come out of this a winner. He doesn't see uh, a, a disastrous Russian defeat as, as likely. I'm a tiny bit more optimistic that Russia might suffer more of a bloody nose for the very reasons you point out. Because if it doesn't, in other words, if the West doesn't allow the Ukraine to to inflict a, or, or support Ukraine to inflict a significant military defeat on uh, Russia, then uh, this will probably happen again. And And the idea that even a defeat wouldn't necessarily mean the end of the Putin regime uh, is also quite striking, isn't it? So so uh, firmly embedded is the regime uh, and the security apparatus there that even, as uh, Professor Feiger says, uh, even a defeat could be spun into something different. Yeah, but I think for the uh, catastrophic defeat to come about would need uh, NATO to basically declare war on Russia. There's, there's no sign of that happening at the moment. Now, so one more thing that name that came up in your conversation with Professor Fajas was that of Alexander Dugin. We better point out that the, this interview was done some time before the news that Dugin was the apparent uh, target of an assassination attempt that in, instead killed his daughter Daria. Now, we, he wasn't particularly well known to Western audiences before this event, um, but he certainly is now. And he's you know, striking figure, Solzhenitsyn-type beard, peasant shirt, and, you know, a very vocal proponent of of, of a greater Russia, a new Russia, a kind of Euro-Asian Russia. Um, so he's a kind of, he's a traditional figure, but a very modern one at the same time, using television, social media, etc., to boost himself. Uh, but at bottom, a massive ultra-nationalist and warmonger who's pr been predicting a war with Ukraine and cheering it on uh, once it happened uh, for years. Um, so he's he's a kind of part of a, of a modern political landscape. I was reminded... Uh, of Steve Bannon, strangely enough, when when I first heard about him, various people have pointed out, like Mark Galliotti, the brilliant uh, Russian analyst, uh, that he's a he, he's one of these people that sort of uh, sees some coming political trend, starts uh, espousing it, and when it actually comes to pass, claims the credit uh, for having inspired it. Uh, so he sort of shapes events post facto in order to big himself up essentially. So he's of the view that he wasn't actually a, a particularly important political figure. The idea that he's Putin's brain, etc., is, uh, is not given much credence. You know, his daughter is even less important than that on the Russian political scene. So it does ask, beg the question, what on earth is going on there? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the the clue that he's not uh, firmly embedded in the Putin regime is the fact that this assassination attempt was carried out on him. I mean, virtually no security, for example, uh, for either him or his daughter. He was clearly the the target of the assassination attempt because that was his car that his daughter was uh, driving. And he was incredibly lucky. Um, pure coincidence. He didn't get in the car and decided to drive in another car. Uh, and, and of course, um, you know, tragically, because there is no... Uh, uh, justification for such a killing of a civilian, albeit one with such extreme views as even his daughter, because his daughter very much, you know, plows the same furrow as, as her father. I mean, I find it also interesting, the speculation about, you know, as I say, I don't think he's that firmly embedded in the regime, uh, right man at the right place, saying the right sort of things for Putin. As Putin moves steadily away, as Orlando explained, um, from the, you know, basic attempt to consider a, a rapprochement uh, with uh, NATO and the West, I don't think that was ever that serious to be to be truthful in the early two thousands. To uh, very much seeing the encroachment on NATO as as a threat, and and therefore turning back towards uh, the East, I suppose you would put it, uh, and trying to create this kind of Pan Asia uh, block that would uh, allow give Russia a certain amount of protection. But I think we also need to accept another really important point. Uh, made by uh, Orlando. And that is, there's always been this debate as to why Russia has become so inquisitive, acquisitive in terms of land, all the way going back to, you know, the early days of the Romanovs. It's steadily increased in size. And why is that? Well, you know, he points out, actually, part of this is security. It's, is it paranoia? Not necessarily, because you've got a country that is steppe land, the original Russia we're talking about, and there were no natural frontiers, and therefore you need buffer zones to protect yourself. Now, whether that's an argument that you, you should still hold true today is another matter, but it is interesting that he feels there were opportunities, not so much in the 2000s, but particularly in the 1990s with the Yeltsin regime that were missed by the West. The West was pretty haughty uh, as a result of having won, in inverted commas, the Cold War, and didn't really make serious attempts to bring Russia into the fold. We'll never know whether that was properly possible, uh, but uh, certainly Orlando Figes feels that uh, those attempts uh, could have been made and weren't. Yeah, interesting. You raised the name of George Kennan, the American diplomat who has seen the story right through from from beginning, well, from the start of the Cold War to the end of it. And that at the end of his life, he was counselling against this triumphalist attitude. Something that struck me, actually, was the way that Kennan, you know, great uh, foreign uh, department figure, uh, State Department figure, um, how the status of, of American diplomats has declined in recent years, recent decades. I've seen that in my own journalistic life, where you'd go to the American embassy, get a fantastically interesting briefing, showing real depth of knowledge, analysis, uh, and a kind of, you know, positive, uh, apolitical, if you like, approach to the country in question, particularly sort of Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. And then none of this ever translated into policy on the part uh, of the president. So I think the, the standing of, of American diplomats, high quality, though they they are and were, notwithstanding, they don't really have a great deal of say in how foreign policy is shaped. Anyway, that's another subject for another day, perhaps. But getting back to Dugin... Uh, once again, we get this sort of, you know, Russian version of events. They don't really expect anyone to believe it because it is so far fetched. We've got them telling us that uh, this was the work, the assassination was the work of a woman agent who traveled around with a, 
uh, her child in tow. Uh, they've even named her Natalia uh, Vuvk, she's called, uh, allegedly. And uh, she rented an apartment uh, in the same block as Daria. So they're saying that it was Daria was actually the target, not Alexander. Uh, somehow, you know, planted the bomb, etc., and has since fled to Estonia. Of course, everyone, Ukrainians are denying that any such thing was done by them. The Estonians are saying no one crossed the border, etc., etc. So once again, we get this sort of uh, almost farcical uh, attempt to explain the thing away. They wrapped up the investigation in 48 hours, which is an absolute record, given that they've never actually tracked down the assassins of lots of other um, people who've been murdered for poor political ends in Russia. So uh, they seem to be kind of almost mocking uh, the rest of us in, in this respect. What about what, what do you think um, are the potential motives here then, then Saul? How do, you, how do you unpick this? Well, they've immediately uh, identified the uh, Ukrainians uh, as the possible originators of this plot. And it is, uh, of course, we, we'll have to wait and, and see. We may never know for sure, actually, but we'll have to wait and see. And it is, of course, possible that the Ukrainians were involved. But it's also very possible uh, that internal elements of, of Russia, possibly even members of the security apparatus are involved. I mean, some commentators are speculating that this is an indication to uh, Putin, exactly how this is an indication, I'm not quite sure, but this is an indication for him to take an even harder line than he is in the war at the moment and to use long-range missiles to target uh, civilian infrastructure in places like Kiev, which has, you know, pretty much been uh, unaffected, relatively speaking, uh, by the war uh, for the last month or two. So, uh, you know, I, it's incredibly difficult to work this out. Could it be members, rogue members, as it were, or at least hardline members of the FSB sending a signal to Putin? I mean, one of the most reliable commentators who will we will hope to have on the program relatively soon, uh, Professor Phillips O'Brien, who's... Um, uh, who's a professor up at St. Andrews, has been keeping a very close eye on this, has said, actually, we, we can't know for sure uh, by now, uh, in these early days, who's responsible and why. But Putin's response will be very telling. If he purges the FSB, for example, that might give us an indication uh, that something within the organisation uh, might have been responsible. He may be purging it, of course, because he's angry that they didn't do anything to stop the plot. Um, there could be other elements in Russia. We'll, we'll, we'll speculate on that in a second. Um, and of course, there is the rather chilling uh, coincidence that um, as we're recording today on a Wednesday, this is Independence Day for Ukraine. And of course, there's a very strong likelihood that he's going to lash out and look at significant or symbolic targets in Ukraine and try and hit them today. So we'll report on that, or at least the aftermath of that uh, next week. But certainly the Americans and uh, President Zelensky himself have been warning uh, Ukrainians not to gather in large numbers today, that there is a, a real danger that they will be under attack. Whatever the uh, connection of uh, Ukraine in the Dugina killing, there was always going to be a likelihood that there would be uh, Russian, symbolic Russian strikes this day, I think. Yeah. Now, if it, if it was actually a, um, a Russian state job, uh, it seems to me uh, that there are, you know, there is some potential propaganda value for them in that. Um, it will underline the message that they've been pumping out to the Russian public that, the, you know, the Ukrainians are all Nazis and this is the kind of thing they do. This is the kind of thing you can expect from them and to kind of up the, up the outrage levels 
And that may be necessary because there are some polls, I know Russian polls are extremely unreliable, uh, but there is some evidence that um, the story that's being peddled, that this is a special operation, they're wearing a bit thin, patience is running out. If it's a special operation, how come it's taking so long? And also, you know, the question of casualties. How do you explain the fact that there are probably, I think we can reliably say there are about 20,000 at least Russian dead, we always go back to that Afghanistan figure. There were only 15,000 Russians dead in Afghanistan over a period of nine years. This is 20,000 dead in six months. How do you, uh, that had a huge political effect. The bodies coming home, news of the deaths, reaching the villages, etc., uh, did bring political pressure to bear on what was a, t- a totalitarian regime. Uh, and you know, got forced them to eventually to abandon the project. So something must be happening on that front. Um, what again, you know, given that we've got all this, uh, you know, potential information uh, waiting to come out. None of it, very little of it, is getting out. We still have very little idea of of what the mood is there. It seems, by and large, to be have been fairly solid. But is that really uh, starting to erode? Uh, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I mean, the biggest conspiracy theory of all, of course, Patrick, which we may as well even vaguely consider is that Putin himself was responsible. Well, I, I'm not, I, you know, I, I can't buy that. Um, responsible because, of course, he then blames the Ukrainians and this justifies, you know, even more outrageous acts. Plus, it brings in a lot of wavering supporters in Russia. As you say, we don't really know what's happening in terms of public opinion in Russia, what they're think about the war. I mean, I got an interesting indication yesterday uh, when I had a follow-up chat with with Orlando Fargis, and he said, I had an interesting uh, chat with someone who has a very close uh, connection in Russia today. And he said that um, basically support for the war is split on generational lines, which I think we knew anyway. Uh, that is the older generation are broadly in support of the war and the younger generation are against it. And, you know, could this be an attempt uh, to bring uh, some of the waverers, so to speak, uh, into line? I'm not buying it because, um, uh, as we know from Putin's own speeches, uh, Dugin was was, uh, an inspiration. You know, is he honestly going to authorise the the killing of this ultra-nationalist? I don't believe it. But rogue elements within his regime, possibly but also uh, dissidents in Russia. And as things stand, and uh, things will shake down, of course, that's probably the most likely scenario at the moment. Yeah, well, we'll come on to that in a bit. But I, I think I disagree with you, actually, about Putin stopping short of um, murdering uh, someone who'd done so much to support him. He's, in my opinion, perfectly capable of doing such a thing. Um, given his history, I mean, this is a man who was almost certainly behind the Russian apartment bombings of September 1999, which killed 300 Russian citizens in, in Moscow and two other cities. Now, the, the bombings were, of course, blamed on the Chechens. And this triggered, uh, this gave a, a, a casus belli for the Second Chechen War. Putin was prime minister at the time, and uh, his firm response calling for the bombing of Grozny, etc., was widely applauded and helped him win the presidency a few months later. But all the evidence is that it wasn't the Chechens who planted the bombs, but FSB agents uh, working at Putin's behest. 
Is he is he capable, Patrick? I, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. He, he absolutely is capable of ordering something like this. But it's it's the identity of the target, uh, Dugin, a man who he has, you know, as I've already pointed out, as confessed, has inspired his thinking about you know greater Russia. Um, no, I, I I can't see the the benefit of for for Putin killing Dugan, but we'll 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 have to disagree on that one, uh, and that's that's absolutely fine. So, what are the other possible scenarios? Well, from the from the Ukrainian perspective, equally, I, I can't see what's in it for them. Um, you know, if they've had actually had the resources to reach into Moscow to carry out this sort of operation, surely uh, it would be better to go after someone more important than a self-promoting TV guru. Yeah, true. Uh, and actually, the, the reaction was always going to be, um, you know, pretty, pretty severe. The the Ukrainians, you know, as you point out, have already denied any responsibility. Um, uh, and they made pretty much that point is that we, we wouldn't have wasted our time on someone like this. On the other hand, he is a target that was relatively easy to get at. Uh, as I say, if you're not a not a member of the inner circle, the inner security apparatus in in russia of course you're not going to have much in the way of protection so it made him uh, an interesting target well the, the most intriguing theory that's been put forward so far is that uh, this was the work of an internal resistance group the national republican army uh there's an mp exiled mp Ilya bonomarev who um was kicked out of the Duma and now kind of is, is an opposition figure abroad. And he said that it was this National Republican Army uh, which was responsible and, and which had also carried out other operations. So this is the first time I've heard of them. But uh, digging around, uh, I came across their, their manifesto, which declares, uh, we declare President Putin a usurper of power and a war criminal who amended the constitution unleashed a fratricidal war between the Slavic peoples, i.e. the war in Ukraine, and sent Russian soldiers to certain and senseless death. Poverty and coffins for some, palaces for others, the essence of his policy. We believe that disenfranchised people have the right to rebel against tyrants. Putin will be deposed and destroyed by us. What, what have you heard about him? Yeah, I mean, I, I've heard the same story. Although that's interesting, I didn't hear the detail of the uh, of the manifesto. Um, you know, it sounds like a credible option, doesn't it? Of, of course, officially, the Russians are saying absolutely nothing to do with this this group. They're not even acknowledging that it exists, understandably, because of course, if it if it does turn out to have been a Russian responsible, there is no justification for any any reaction. Uh, any tit for tat uh, as far as Ukrainian targets are concerned. And, and of course, you know, it's very useful for them, frankly, at the moment to have uh, this crime pinned on Ukraine uh, for reasons that we've already discussed. Um, we don't know enough about the National Liberation Army. It's something we need to keep our eye on. It's a possibility. My personal instinct is that this act has been carried out by someone uh, internal to Russia, it's not a Ukrainian act, but but you know who knows. We'll we'll have to wait and see. Uh, their kind of logo is a blue and white flag, not the tricolor of Putin's Russia, and this uh, is also uh, the emblem of something called the Freedom of Russia Legion, which is a apparently you know pretty small group of uh, ex-Russian and ex-Belarusian soldiers who are now fighting uh, on the side of Ukraine. Uh, some of them are. Uh, defectors, uh, and they've been formed into this uh, legion, which is obviously 
not terribly militarily significant, but has significant propaganda value for the Ukrainians. Um, so they've, you know, they've apparently been trained up. They're um, they're using the anti-tank weapons that we've supplied them, others have supplied them with, have been which have been so effective on the on the battlefield. Um, and you know, there is of course a history, isn't there, of, of defections throughout the Second World War from the Russian side. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also grim circumstances, Patrick, because we remember at the end of the war for anyone who had done that. But yes, there is a, a long tradition of that. Um, pretty much anyone who fell into uh, Russian hands at the end of the Second World War uh, and who had fought in on or with the Axis in any way uh, was, you know, that was a, almost certainly a guaranteed death sentence. So, you know, incredibly risky to do that sort of thing in an authoritarian state. And therefore, if that is the answer that a lot of very uh, brave people involved um talking of the fsb which is the uh, the security apparatus the former kgb that uh, putin of course used to lead himself i think it was interesting just going back to orlando figer's um uh, explanation or at least assessment of why the war had come about uh, that he thinks they played a, or might have played a, a very significant role and that is they were giving dodgy information back to Moscow as to how the Ukrainians might react to a war. On the one hand, saying a lot of uh, Russians and indeed ethnic Ukrainians would support the war. uh, And secondly, saying Zelensky's government would collapse like a house of cards. So clearly there's something quite rotten uh, in the FSB to have got it so badly wrong. Why did they do it? Well, Orlando's version of events is, you know, this is corruption, basically. They were taking cash, which of course should have gone to inform in Ukraine uh, and making up stories that it believed uh, Moscow wanted to hear. Whether they assumed that was actually going to lead to an invasion uh, is another matter. So uh, just, uh, you know, just before we go on to the news, I think it is worth just both of us speculating uh, a little bit on why he took that decision, because Orlando is quite clear. And I asked the question, um, you know, what is going on here? Because he was getting most of what he wanted, which is to keep Ukraine de- destabilized, NATO out. Uh, he'd already annexed the Crimea. I mean, what was to be gained by the war and how do you explain it? Um, Orlando felt it was long planned and and uh, and that the timing in 2022 was pretty good. But still, uh, it, it is a big leap from all of those things, in, basically in favour, including the dodgy information from the FSB, to actually pressing the button. Uh, if we can use that analogy, slightly unfortunate one for a for a new <laughs> nuclear power. Um, any thoughts yourself, Patrick, on what might have tipped Putin over the edge uh, this year? Yeah, well, a couple really. I mean, one one is that he. I think this is an indication that, that of how far removed from reality he's he's become, which is always the case with autocrats. You insulate yourself from anyone who's going to tell you something you don't want to hear. Uh, so therefore, all you ever get is the good news. And linked to that, I would say, is that he's coming to the end of his life. I won't uh, bother speculating about his health because we don't hear much about that anymore. There was some excited notions early earlier on that um, you know, analysis of, of his hand shaking a little bit or something meant that he had this or that disease uh, that all seems to have faded away but I think there is a kind of you know legacy phase of his life he's moving into thinking what am I going to leave behind and thinking what about you know one last throw of the dice that will bring everything uh, that I'm now currently working on as part of the of the of Russia's future project and it could all come very quickly and very easily um, 
because this is what I'm being told. Now, I think, you know, in his old, the old Putin would have known just how dodgy all intelligence is, particularly human intelligence, uh, which is, there are so many motives behind why he would tell the story. One is to keep your job, your nice cushy job. We saw this very much in the Second World War with, um, with German intelligence, particularly Abwehr intelligence. You've got a nice job in Paris or down in the south of France. Uh, you invent a whole load of, uh, agents who are very greedy and you have to keep paying. Uh, and then you send back uh, all sorts of bullshit reports about what's going on um, just to uh, you know benefit your own particular happy situation. So the old Putin would have, would have seen through all this stuff and, and, and tried to get to the real heart of the matter. But I think, you know, in his current isolated, paranoid and grandiose state, he, he might have thought, OK, let's just do it, see what happens. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we're, it's speculation and we're going to have to uh, wait and see, of course. So let's uh, move on to uh, some of the interesting news stories this week. And they have been some really fascinating ones, actually, uh, Patrick. Uh, a piece in The Times, war fatigue sets in as Russians switch off their televisions. Um you know, this is a story really about about, uh, or at least the the slant is that Russians are fed up with the uh, pro war propaganda, and that whereas eighty six percent of the population were watching the three main television channels at the start of the war, that's now fallen to sixty five percent. And you know, this is an indication of, uh, you know, as I say, uh, they're just being bombarded with stories that are not particularly entertaining. Well, it's partly it might be an indication that the war is becoming less popular, but it might also be an indication, uh, frankly, that those popular light entertainment programs that they're used to, which have been removed from the airwaves so that it's just got, you know, wall to wall, Kremlin friendly pundits uh, who are telling viewers that Ukraine is a Nazi state and explaining why it needs to be liberated. They're pretty much fed up with that. So, you know, I suspect that that can be taken either way. But it is quite an interesting thought that the, you know, the 24 hour propaganda uh, machine is reaching fewer people these days. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, in the West, uh, those decisions are made by the editors. So they decide, okay, the, the viewers or the readers are, are getting a bit bored with this. So let's kind of, you know, change the diet a bit. But uh, of course, that's, that's not the case, uh, in Russia. So I think, you know, you can, one can possibly read too much into this. Um, and it doesn't sound like an enormous fall either. So I'd be a bit wary of that one. Yeah, there's another interesting story about uh, the the UN announcing uh, a team to investigate the attack. I don't know if you remember this, Patrick, a, a week or two ago, maybe a little bit longer than that. There was a, a you know very bizarre story, which was that a lot of the POWs had been taken from Mariupol, particularly members of the uh, you know allegedly far right Azov battalion. Uh, were killed in an attack on a, on a, effectively a prisoner war camp. Uh, of course, the Russians said the Ukrainians did it and the Ukrainians, uh, and frankly, they're a bit more believable on this, uh, say that Russia did it. So why might Russia have done it? Well, the very fact that the UN has prepared to put a team together to investigate the mass killing of Ukrainian prisoners of war, uh, indicates, I'm afraid that, that, or at least it looks like that Russia was responsible. So what might have been the motive? Well, the motive uh, seems to have been we want to do away with these guys anyway, but also and probably more significant that actually a lot of torture and killing had already gone on in that camp uh, and that this was effectively a cover up that they were going to blame on, on Ukraine. And that, as you know, as we've already speculated over the over the Dugina killing is very much uh, their modus operandi. 
Yeah, it is astonishing when you just spelt out that possibility that we're talking in these terms, you know, in the well into the 21st century, that this sort of barbarism uh, is is thinkable. Uh, it is quite chilling. Yeah. Now, another interesting story. Um, three politicians. This is a German story going back to, uh, you know, some of the points you made about where you know, it was interesting what you said. Germany has come full circle now in, 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 in some ways as a reaction to Nazism. It's become uh, certainly since the end of the Cold War, almost a pacifist state and, and that it needs to row back from that, of course, and arm itself significantly. Well, well, interesting development this week. Three politicians from, from three separate parties, the SPT, FDP and the Greens, uh, have written an op-ed uh, together in Der Spiegel, the, you know, the popular German newspaper, uh, not only calling for more weapons for Ukraine, but also uh, clearly stating they feel that, that it needs an announcement needs to to be made that clearly states that European uh, and German security is being defended by Ukraine and that the Bundeswehr, the, the German army, should accept some deficits and lack of equipment uh, so that Ukraine can be equipped faster. I mean, this is really quite a major uh, development. Of course, you don't have the every, every single member of those parties um, uh, in on this, but it is quite an interesting shift, I think, that might be going on in Germany. Yeah, I mean, th- and this actually runs counter to what we w- we've been saying before about uh, a gradual weakening of will uh, among the democratic parties of the West towards supporting Ukraine, playing into that scenario that Ukraine will gradually come to be seen as being the, um, the, the party holding up the prospect of some sort of settlement. But this seems to, to be very much the opposite of that, doesn't it? And in, in a sense, uh, you know, if you want to see uh, a decisive Ukrainian victory, then this is good news. Yeah, exactly. As I was saying, and that one, one other interlinked story, um, not directly connected, but trending in the same direction, I suppose you, you, you might suggest is the news uh, coming out of the United States this week that they are going to transfer uh, Excalibur high precision long range shells to Ukraine. Now, these are shells that have a, a range of between, uh, well, up to 70 kilometers, which uh, will, you know, give or take 50 miles. Uh, and they can be fired with glide fins used. They're GPS guided and they've got an accuracy, apparently, Patrick, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Fired from an artillery piece of four meters. Um, its makers claim that a shell can accurately hit a target that would take uh, from 10 to 50 conventional unguided shells to destroy. And more significant than all of this is uh, some of this kit can actually be fired by stuff that's already in Ukraine, including HIMARS. And, and of course, this uh, is going to give the uh, Ukrainians significant targeting capability uh, with these precision long-range shells. But there's something else uh, uh, happening as well um, interlinked to this story. And that's the uh, growing speculation that the United States has already supplied um, uh, Ukraine with uh, so-called ATACMS. There's, there's a big acronym, so I won't read it out. But these are short-range tactical missiles. Uh, these can be fired by HIMARS, multiple rocket launch systems, and that Ukraine has already received them 
Uh, and they have a range, and this is the really significant uh, point here, Patrick, of 300 kilometers. Now, this is all speculation at this point, but it could explain, it could explain some of these uh, long range attacks in Crimea that have been going on. And there is a suspicion that uh, America has already supplied these and it is denying these at the moment to give, of course, the Ukrainians the edge to sort of, you know, take a little bit of the bite off the Russian reaction, uh, uh, but that sooner or later we'll find out the truth. And, and one of the indications of, of, of this is that they have denied other kit in the past, and it's then been discovered that the kit is actually there. So we'll have to w- wait and see what's going on on this one. But it's definitely um, a possible explanation for some of these long-range attacks. And of course, it's giving uh, Ukraine a significant long-range capability. Yeah, well, that would make sense all around. It would explain a, a lot of uh, mysterious events for sure. Um, of course, the the big question, uh, ongoing question, is whether this technological edge will cancel out the Russian uh, overmatch in just men and conventional kit. Um, that's really the the big question. The other one, of course, is the question of, of will and morale. I think the Ukrainians still very much uh, have the advantage uh, on that front. And going back to Dugin, I think whatever the truth about uh, the Dugin story is, if we do, whichever way you look at it, if it was the Ukrainians or it was the Russians, it does sort of, uh, it's an indication of weakness, isn't it, uh, at the heart of Russia. Uh, and I think... Um, uh, this sort of thing, it's symbolic, but it's its nonetheless significant. Yeah, and uh, last couple of uh, very interesting stories uh, coming out of the Ukrainian military this week. Um, on the one hand, they've admitted, uh, they've given precise figures for the number of soldiers killed. They, they, they've said that almost 9,000 uh, soldiers have been killed in the war so far. And of course, they, they haven't given total casualties, but, you know, give or take, if we give a three to one, um, which is, fairly typical in war, you could say the total casualties of about 40,000. Now, you talked about 20,000 Russian dead. I think it's higher than that. The Americans are estimating total casualties of about 80,000. The Ukrainians uh, have gone on the record of saying at least 40,000 Russians are dead. So we'll probably split the difference uh, and say maybe up to 30,000 Russians have been killed. Going back to your point, this is going to be affecting um, uh, uh, people in Russia. Uh, Apart, but the only counter to that, uh, of course, is that a lot of these guys, as you pointed out on the on the podcast, I think last week, Patrick, are coming from distant areas of of the Russian Federation, and actually, it's not the heartland, the decision making areas like Moscow and St. Petersburg that are feeling the pinch in terms of body count at the moment. Yeah, uh, I think that on that figure of nine thousand Ukrainian dead, uh, I think that is probably accurate because in Ukraine, uh, that will be checkable, verifiable, and it would be very bad politics, I think, for uh, Zelensky to underestimate uh, the dead for all sorts of obvious reasons. It seems to, it would be a kind of cynical manipulation of of the sacrifice, and I don't think he's uh, the man to do that. I think he's he's demonstrated over and over again his, his fantastically deft political touch. So I think we can take that 9,000 dead as being as being a true figure. Yeah. And one other uh, comment made by the Ukraine military, apropos our 
uh, speculation and discussion last week, Patrick, about the Kherson um, offensive, which people are sort of waiting and saying, yeah, a lot of people are saying, well, when's it actually going to happen? You know, what, what's going on here? Well, according to um, uh, the Ukrainian military this week, it's it has already begun and it is beginning to take an effect. And the reason we're not, we aren't noticing it in quite the same way is that what it, what they're actually doing is carrying out a gradual, a systematic, a methodical counteroffensive that is not loads of guys leaping out of the trench, trenches and trying to take ground. It's degrading uh, the capacity of the Russians in that area of southern Ukraine to resist by targeting infrastructure, bridges, resupply, ammunition depots, uh, and that uh, slowly but surely this is having an effect. And the direct quote from the press uh, coordination center in Ukraine for the military is, if everyone expected that they would see how troops rise up and march through the steps of Kherson Oblast, too bad, because in the conditions of modern warfare, the counteroffensive looks very different. Basically, it's the depletion of the enemy's forces. So we've got here a situation, Patrick, where um, really they're playing the Russians at their own game to a certain extent. Yeah, fascinating. Another indication of how, you know, this this war is taking warfare in general into, into new areas. We're learning new stuff about how contemporary war is conducted every day. Yeah, and um, not so much news, but uh, finally a kind of interesting opinion piece um, by uh, a, a journalist and, and, you know, of a very experienced political commentator called Peter Conradi, who's really just uh, backing up a lot of the points that we've already had from Orlando on the programme. Uh, and that is that uh, mistakes were made and that actually you can never stop talking to Russia. So this is really the sort of Kissinger point. Mistakes were made in the 1990s, even in the 2000s. NATO became, you know, far too aggressive, I suppose, in terms of uh, expanding its membership uh, and that you can never stop talking to Russia because otherwise you've got you you've got on the sidelines, uh, you know, a really quite a dangerous state. And uh, yeah, I don't think Conrad is going as far as as saying, you know, let's do a deal that sells the uh, Ukrainians down the river. I don't think he's doing that, but he's suggesting that in the slightest. But what he is saying is uh, channels of communication need to be kept open. Absolutely. Okay. well, that's all we've got time for now. Join us next week when we'll have another star guest offering real insights into the war. Goodbye. Goodbye.